Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Hello and welcome again to South Beach Sessions. I am Dan Lebitard, and over the last couple of months, we've been using this space to introduce to you friends and family members as part of this extended universe where we are welcoming in some people who are familiar to you, some people we've worked with before, some people who've become friends on and off the air, some people that if you've been listening to us for a long time, you know them, you know their work, at least in part because they visited our world and made it better. And so among the and friends and Lebetard and friends as Metal Art Media continues to support these journalistic things that we're doing around here with fun and creativity, Metal Arc Media has hired Tom Haberstrow, who's been with our show for a long time. The OG of basketball nerddom around here taught us over the last 10 years a bunch of stuff as we all learned about why it is that the Miami Heat and positionless basketball was valuable and how you do the measurements and just geeking out with some of the math of the sports. We got to know and love Tom Haberstrow, and we're delighted that he is now part of and friends. We're delighted to make him more formally a member of the family that he's been a part of for a while. So before we get started, Tom, and I introduce you to the audience on some biographical stuff they may not know about you, why don't you tell people the story because it's a cool story of how you ended up over here because it was not unlike Amin El Hassan showed up over here where he was just somebody who wanted to be about whatever it is we were building, even though there were precious few details. And everyone in our crew was giving Tom the advice to take a standing offer elsewhere because he's got kids and we weren't ready for him. But he said, anyway, no, I ride with you guys. I ride with you guys no matter what. Well, first of all, I just want to say, did I, did I get hired? You are hired. You are officially hired. It, it can be announced. We had to make a whole lot of other announcements, more important people, but you are now officially hired. I thought somebody told you that. I'm sorry to be breaking that news to you here. Oh, that's great. That's great news, uh, Dan. Um, it's been super weird, like limbo. I got let go from NBC Sports in October. I found out on quote-unquote vacation in August that I was going to be let go from my position as the National NBA Insider for NBC Sports. And it was a super weird time. The pandemic was here. I have two young girls, um, an amazing life uh, right before that. And finding out that you're going to get let go is an incredibly um, disheartening thing. You lose a lot of confidence, a lot of your a lot of your dreams that you wanted to become a TV star, whatever that means at NBC Sports or uh, getting those reps on TV that I got there was great. And then it all came to a screeching halt in October. And then I was just kind of floating around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And January 4th, I think it was, is when you announced that you're leaving ESPN. And I just saw that. And I said, that's the guy. That's the guy I want to hitch my wagon to because some of the content that I did over the years at ESPN, it was not as textural. It was like not lifeless, but it came alive whenever I was on your show. The idea of 
writing a story about getting hit in the groin. I wrote a magazine story about guys getting hit in the groin in the NBA. Everyone's getting hit in the nuts in the NBA. And I had to write this like very serious NBA ESPN magazine piece. And I brought it to you and you're like, why don't we come into the studio and just watch a bunch of guys getting hit in the nuts and laugh about it. And that piece of content right there was so much more fun and so much more compelling as a medium than anything I had done at the magazine on that story. And time and time again, that happened, Dan, is what I would have something and then I'd come on your show and you would just make it like turn it into magic. And so when you left, I was just praying. I, I think I might've even reached out to you and said, if you are starting up a, a media company or anything, I'm there. You just give me the word and I will jump. And took a lot longer than I think both of us would have liked to get to this point. But um, I am so excited to be part of this m- machine that you're, you're building. I was really moved, though, when we talked the other day and I met your wife for the first time. I'd never met her before, and I was super moved by the idea that she would push you this way and with, you know, with your kids and your future and tell you that you have to go, you have to go find happy somewhere. Like, that is what we're trying to build around here for creatives, an environment where they feel supported and allowed to dream. But it was super moving. The family elements of that, the idea that your wife who I don't know would know you well enough to know that you needed to chase creativity in a different form because it hasn't felt the right way in the other places that you've worked. It'll produce the best you, I believe Tom, because now you're working for yourself in a place where you care about the people and you take a proprietary pride in the work because Tom, what you're saying is patently absurd. You were doing a magazine story about junk being hit by basketballs you're telling me that story had to be told seriously that's absurd i know and that was the time you remember you said my head looks like a testicle which it does which it does look like a testicle there's no disputing this it was an amazing moment of uh like we i I have not laughed more than being on the show with you guys and Stu gots and there you do a balance of super serious journalism that can win awards and also just a complete clown show and I just love that. I love that about you guys. And I know you you hear that a lot is that you have this, you, you tread this line of a delicate balance of being life-changing, people crying on your show, revealing things they've never talked about in their life. And then you can just wear a Speedo with Charles Barkley and just look like be a complete clown. And um, my wife, look, my wife is, she's amazing. She, um, left a job at Vanguard Financial out of college. She was an econ major at college and was going to be on this like brilliant path to finance or business and left that job to follow me to Bristol, Connecticut to take a $12 an hour job at ESPN. She left this job and said, I'm going to hitch my wagon to my boyfriend, Tom, and follow him to Weathersfield, Connecticut which is the oldest town in Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut. I didn't even know about Weathersfield just so that I could put my foot in the door at ESPN. And I told her, I said, if I can just get my foot in the door at ESPN, I think I can do this. And she's like, okay, I believe in you. And when I got there in 2008, the financial crash had happened. If you want to learn more about it, watch Big Short from um, Adam McKay. I was taking a huge risk. I was on the path to being an eye banker at college and I couldn't, there was no job to be had. And so she believed in me then. And I parlayed that into a full-time job at ESPN covering LeBron James in Miami. She believed in me then. 
And then this past few months, she believed in me and said, look, I think you need to be with Dan Lebetard in that group because the way, the, the happiness that you are working with them, that is what you need to chase. I don't want you coming home after a, a long day at work at a job you're not fulfilled and you're not happy because that makes me unhappy. That makes the kids unhappy. And I want you to feel maximized and feel like you're broadening your horizons uh, both professionally and personally because I really do believe you guys, you treat other people like they're people and they're, you're not punching in a clock. And it doesn't mean you don't have to produce great work. Like the standard is you do great work, but also we're going to treat you like human beings. And I just, I knew that if you broke off from ESPN, I wanted to be a part of that. Just like a meme. I don't get it though, Tom. Like how can you arriving at your dreams in sports pushed by your wife that way? How could it have not worked out the way that you wanted it to? I mean, we got there eventually, but how did you arrive in places where the work wasn't joyful, given that you were arriving at what you thought were your dreams? Was it something less than what you expected? Well, I think the pandemic had a lot to do with it, but at NBC, there were a lot of amazing people there and they afforded me the job of being like on TV in Boston, in Sacramento, in Golden State pregame during, like I got to, Dan, I got to call live games on air, the Golden State Warriors. I would be calling the game for NBC Sports, the the broadcast Warriors game. I'm like in the booth calling Steph Curry games. Like that job was super cool. And then the pandemic hit and everything became remote And I think I lost the love of working for a team, like interacting with people, like-minded people and being able to like go into a studio or or work together and and just draw up like some plays. What's the story you have? Here are some people, Adam McKay, Michael Schur, uh, Jamel Hill, Amin Elhassan, Stu Gatz, like bring in Stu Gatz and we'll just like draw up some ideas. And that creative explosion was so appealing to me because I think a lot of the content we do as a national NBA insider, whatever that means, is ephemeral. Like, hey, what do you think about the mat- matchup of Andre Drummond going against uh, Daniel Tice tonight? You know, like that was my job. And we did some really cool things, but I wanted to chase a lot more of the creative side and have the resources and the brain power to kind of extract that that secret sauce that makes uh, me want to come into work every day. And I don't know if it's losing the joy. It certainly wasn't as fun as some of the things that we had worked on together. And I wanted to rekindle that. Well, tell us the backstory on how you ended up at ESPN. How do you go from banker to guy who's going to chase this weird dream? Uh, Well, so my, I come from a family of bankers. My dad worked in finance and still does uh, in, in Wall Street for 20 years. He took a job at Chase Bank in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I grew up the first four years of my life was in Brazil. And my older brothers, my two older brothers worked for my father at his investment firm. And so I was on the track to go and be join the family business or at least be a financial advisor, an iBanker. And then the housing crash happened and the whole fucking economy exploded. And so all the jobs that I had been chasing or wanting to do in, in Charlotte, uh, Bank of America headquarters, Wachovia, now Wells Fargo was there and I interviewed at 23 different places and they all turned me down because there was no jobs to be had. So I said, all right, well, I'm good with numbers and I love sports and I could take this like stats thing and try to do something with that at ESPN. And so I, I read an article from Mark Simon, who's the researcher for baseball tonight. And he's never gotten this email before, but I wrote him an email saying, I want to do what you do. I want to take stats or research and make it come alive on air. And he's like, no one's ever written that email to me. He's a guy, Dan, if you've not seen it, he can recite every World Series final out call on the radio. 
Like he can recite every single World Series final out. This guy's brilliant. He goes from all the way, all the way through for 90 years. He can recite the final call, the radio call of the final out in the World Series. Brilliant guy. And um, we went out to lunch and he said, I'm going to try to get you in at ESPN. So I interviewed for two jobs full time. I didn't get any of them. And Dan, the ego hit that I had graduating from college and not getting a full-time job offer from ESPN and having to take a temp agency job at Edge Technologies in Bristol, Connecticut to just get my foot in the door at ESPN was, was incredible. It was a huge leap. It was a huge leap of faith. And um, it doesn't happen without the crash. And this is one of the reasons why I feel like this job with Levitard show um, Metal Arc is so big for me is because the last time I made that big gamble, it paid off. I've never talked about this. Um, I had worked so hard nights trying to get a full-time job offer at ESPN. It was like my dream job. I, I worked $12 an hour, 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. I never saw my wife. She was working during the day and after the year of doing that, working in the stats analysis department, I got a full-time job offer for $30,000. I got a full-time job offer with benefits and I cried. I was so excited. I got my full-time job offer at ESPN. I busted my tail working nights and just kind of get this dream job of getting a full-time offer. And I got, um, I accepted the offer and my wife and I planned a weekend in, in Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, I got a phone call from ESPN that day. And they, it was, I was like, okay, um, we're going to celebrate me getting this job. I'm 23 years old and uh, it's ESPN legal. And ESPN, this guy on the other end was like head of legal or something like that at ESPN. And he says, uh, hi, Tom. Um, I regret to inform you that we are rescinding our job offer. Um, you have falsified your job application at ESPN and therefore you are no longer going to be working at ESPN. And also you are no longer allowed to reapply for a year because of your falsification of the application. I didn't know what he was talking about. And I, I called everyone I could to find, get to the bottom of it. And they had on a background check found out that I got arrested when I was 19 years old at college because I was hungover and got in my car and drove to my grandparents' house for brunch at 10.30 in the morning. And this is the craziest thing. Um, and I got arrested. I was not above the legal limit. I was pulled over for speeding and the police officer heard or smelled the alcohol in my breath and said, have you been drinking this morning? And my lawyer said it got expunged off my record. <laughs> And uh, it was not expunged. And so ESPN saw that I had this misdemeanor on my record and I forgot about it. The, my lawyer told me I never have to think about it ever again. It's expunged. I went through all the classes to get it off my record and it wasn't. And ESPN saw that and said, we don't want Tom Habersow ever working here. And um, that was a year suspension at ESPN. I'm sorry to learn of it that way. Metal Arc Media's background check did not turn this up either. And we're going to have to rescind our offer now as well, because I did not know this. And Disney Global Security did a more thorough job in vetting you. Clearly, criminal Tom Haverstrow joins the pirate ship. So you were gone for a year. But how does this work in terms of your desperation, your doubt, the temp job? Like, where were you in your life and how much of a disappointment did you feel like to your wife? Because she's betting on this dream behind you. 
It was terrible. We were going to Newport, Rhode Island to celebrate me getting this job. And on the way out, we get this call that, nope, all that dream, that, that dream job, just poof, gone. And I thought it was a mistake. And I called everybody trying to get to the bottom of it. And so the story goes, I'm in a jail cell, Dan. I'm in a jail cell in Aradell County. And uh, I'm in a polo button-down shirt, a white polo button-down shirt with blue khaki shorts on and top siders. And I'm in the jail cell. I mean, I'm going through my mind, like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. And two other guys are are walking into the jail cell. And one guy was wearing a T-Mac Orlando Magic jersey. And the other one, they're like reuniting. They are two independently got arrested and put in jail and they hadn't seen each other in 10 years. And they're reuniting. They're like, hey man, you in the corner over there with the, with the, with the polo shirt. What do you do? What are you in here for? And I was like, you want to hear the story? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you in here for? I'm like, I went out last night at a, at a frat party and uh, a senior frat guy pulled me aside with my buddy and said, Hey, it's the last night of my senior year. The last party, it's called the last dance. We are finishing this handle of liquor here, the Jim Beam bourbon whiskey. And you're not leaving this room until we do it. And so he kicks out the senior kicks out his girlfriend, who was a friend of mine. She leaves. It was the most rude thing I've ever seen. And that's the last thing I remember. I wake up the next morning to my alarm going off and my, my, um, my roommate is shaking me awake and I'm fully clothed on top of my sheets. And I realize I'm late to go to brunch with my grandparents in Charlotte. It's, it's set, it's an hour's drive. And uh, I get in my car and I'm kind of speeding apparently because I was going 72 and a 70 and then the speed limit dropped to 55 guy pulls me over. I get breathalyzed. I blew a 0.05 hung over from the night before, which is incredible. And uh, I had put that away and I compartmentalized that in my brain that it just never happened. And um, it raised all of these demons inside me. And I just, I, I went to Newport, Rhode Island. It was terrible. And I just looked at my wife. She was my girlfriend at that time. And I said, if you want to pack up and go, like, I get it. I get it. I don't know how I'd come back from this. A few days later, ESPN Insider called, calls me and says, we've got great news. Your job offer has been rescinded. And I said, what do you mean that's great news? And they said, have you ever thought of yourself as a writer? I said, no, I, I just do stats. I'm I, like Scott Van Pelt is on air and he needs a stat real quick to talk about how the Seattle Mariners are really good at, at baseball. I got it. Boom. I, I, I look it up. I research. I give it to him. And that was my job. And they're like, no, we think you're better than that. We think you can be a writer. What do you say? We do a freelance deal. Every week you write a column about the NBA and we'll pay you, but you're not headcount. You're not official. But in order to do that job, being a writer at ESPN, you would have had to go through that org chart for 10 years to even get this opportunity. But we're going to give you that opportunity right now if you want to take it. And I, Dan, I never thought of myself as a writer, but that job, getting losing that job, was the best thing that had happened to me because ESPN.com Insider, which was like Chris Broussard, Rick Buecher, like these giants in the NBA space, they were offering me a job to write a weekly column. And so then I just was like, all right, I'm chasing that. Like, I'm going to think of myself as a writer now. And after a year of doing that, Dan, LeBron James took his talents to South Beach and I got a full-time job offer to cover the Miami Heat um, after just this horrible setback told I was not going to work at ESPN for a year 
And I got in through the back door writing freelance stories and that unlocked this, it launched my career. Hired based on what? Like, where did they find you? How did they know about you? So at this time in 2008, the sabermetric revolution was happening and in baseball, but it was crossing over into other sports. But John Hollinger and Kevin Pelton were the only people doing it on the NBA side. And so I was going in and I was like, all right, there's lots of sabermetrics going on over here in baseball. What if we apply that to basketball? So I would produce all of these packets of information on advanced stats in basketball and give it to writers like Chris Broussard and Rick Buecher and a- amplify their articles. So like, I remember one time Rick Buecher did a story about how good the Spurs were at drafting in the NBA draft, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, uh, all these players drafted really late in the draft. He had no data backing it up. He was just using like sources around the league saying they're so good and having these little anecdotes. ESPN Insider was like, Tom, you're doing really cool work for ESPN research about NBA analytics. Could you like send us some, some of that, so, some of those research packets to Rick Buecher and, and Chris Broussard? And so they had seen my work, their ability to, to take an angle and just provide a lot of evidence and a lot of analytics and think about the game in a different way. They saw that and they said, we think this is going to take off in the NBA. Like the sabermetric revolution that's happening in baseball, it's going to take off in the NBA and we want you to be at the forefront of it. And I remember I still, my brother, my brother got me a framed photo of Chris Broussard argue, like writing an article about Shaq playing with LeBron in Cleveland. And there was a line in it that said, research provided by Tom Haberstroh about Shaq's performance with LeBron. And my brother framed that, fo- that article and gave it to me. It was like, you've made it. You're in ESPN, the magazine. Your research provided by Tom Haberstroh. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I just never wanted to uh, believe that after a year of being told by ESPN, you're gone. Like you falsified your application. You did not disclose that you had been arrested back in. I thought it was gone. It wasn't. Enough, Tom. You're a drunk criminal. We got it. You're a bad boy. And you thought it was gone. Enough with that. Like, honest to God, I'm tired of your excuse making. Your first acts as someone working on behalf of Metal Arc Media is just to make a bunch of excuses about how you're not a drunk criminal. Frankly, around here, we'd prefer you be a drunk criminal. So stop apologizing for your point five hungover. I'm purging. Like just I'm stop. purging, Dan. Okay, pur- so ESPN banned you for a year around here. We gave you a job, and I'm happy to learn that you're a drunk criminal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What was living in Brazil like? So uh, I have home videos of myself speaking fluent Portuguese. I don't speak Portuguese anymore. It's one of my biggest regrets in my life, but there's home videos of me in like a green Speedo with my twin sister jumping into a pool and swimming around and, uh, and, and speaking fluent Portuguese. And my parents are not Portuguese, Brazilian. Um, we were Americans on a street where we had to have two armed bodyguards um, day and night guarding because we were American with American money in Sao Paulo, which is one of the biggest cities in the world. 
uh, and we were targeted. We had targets on our backs just by being American in Sao Paulo. My dad was a banker at Chase Bank, right? And uh, so we had armed guards. We had fences, like walls around our property that had bro- we had to put broken glass on the top of the fences so anyone who wanted to jump the trespass and jump be landing in a pile of shattered glass. And I was insulated from that. My parents never told me about this when I was a kid. And they tried to make some money to bring back to the United States. And part of the deal was we were going to be in a, an extremely dangerous city. There have been gunfights on my street. My mother, one time my dad was on a business trip to New York and there was a murderer on our street in Sao Paulo. And the SWAT team was overhead of our house and thought that the, the, the person had, was going to come into our property. My mom was huddled under in the basement with her four kids crying hysterically because she thinks the family's going to get murdered or taken hostage, which is something that happened a lot there. And calling my dad and saying, we're leaving now. Like we're leaving. We're going back to America. We can't do this anymore. And that was our, our life was trying. My dad was trying to make some money to bring back to the States the inflation was crazy and my mom could not have wanted to get back to, to the United States quicker because that, that experience was scarring uh, being in Sao Paulo at that time. Did your dad know how dangerous it was when he took the job? Like what kind of heaviness was on the family at all times knowing the danger of what it is that you were living? I mean, I just talked to him yesterday about this. Um, I was spending some time with my parents and they, they said my dad had turned down the job like seven times because it was too dangerous. And each time he turned it down, Chase would put another thing on the table to try to make him feel safe. And finally, my parents said, okay, we'll try this. And they were a middle-class family at that point commuting into New York City. And the way that it works is like the dollar was so powerful there that like if you had any money, American money, you lived in a palace in Sao Paulo. But that was also a huge target for criminals. So my mom and dad knew that it was dangerous, but they wanted to take a chance. And I guess it paid off is that we, uh, we came back to the States and I grew, I grew up in Connecticut and um, my dad continued to work at Wall Street. But like, it still is super bizarre watching home videos of myself speaking a language that I don't have in my head. Like, I don't know Portuguese. I hear Portuguese and I know what they're saying, but I can't speak it. And it's extremely frustrating for me, Dad. Would you have been happy as a banker? I don't think so. I remember my brothers telling me, my older brothers who are in that field, they, when I was deciding between a financial advisor job in Greensboro, North Carolina, or ESPN, a, a part-time internship, essentially, they said 1,000% go to take ESPN job because your happiness, like you might make some, a lot of money here in finance, but I can tell you a lot of people here in this world are miserable. It's not to say that people at ESPN or in sports are not miserable, but the chance to chase your childhood dream or, or do something that you feel fulfilled and happy and fun about is worth way more. And you can always go back to finance. With that degree, you can always go back to finance, but they would kill And this is true to this day. So many of my friends who work in finance, like find out I've been on ESPN and SportsCenter and work with Dan Lebitard and they're just like, oh my God, like that's amazing. And that response is just like, I don't know, you can't replicate that. You can't duplicate that. It's interesting how you feed the creative soul though. Family of bankers though, I don't think creativity. So what was happening there 
in terms of patterns and hand-me-downs on the family stuff. That's just what was learned. And so we marched toward that, whether we're creatives or not. My mother worked in, uh, she was one of the first female bankers in New York City and Wall Street. And she this like creative soul. She was a, a feminist, a hippie. She would hike, hike, uh, hitchhike across the United States. She went to Smith College, which is a super liberal school in, uh, in Massachusetts. And, um, and she just like, it always encouraged me to chase my dream. It's like, she realized that I had this creative side of me of, of watching basketball. And I always, as a kid, would like take down the stats and the box score uh, by hand. Whenever I went to a baseball game, I would have the scorebook and I would draw, draw it down. And she saw how joyous I was. I had so much fun doing that. And, uh, and she just said, go keep doing that. Like I would play Madden 94 and write game stories off of the video game that I played when I was eight years old. I would take down the stats and I would write game stories on the Madden game. And my mom saw like, hey, that's what you should be doing. Like, do that. Um, you're really good at that. And I was an artist in college. I made the art gallery at Wake Forest. And my mom was just like, you need to, you need to be creative. Like, you need to look at things and see them in a different light and go chase that. So I, I credit my mom with a lot of that saying, you need to go do something that is not the path that is well-trodden in this family. Go chase that because you're, that's you. So uh, I, owe, I owe a lot of that inspiration to my mother, who is always just kind of this, I don't know, free, more freewheeling spirit um, uh, that wanted me to maximize myself. I knew that probably wasn't going to happen in the finance world. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Brace yourselves. You are about to hear Dan Lebitard kill Tom Haberstroh's mom who is courageously battling ALS, but is still very much alive. $1,000. Back to the podcast. Well, let's talk about her for a second and punctuate this that way, because what we are building here at Metal Ark Media is very much the family business. All of the people that we talk to, like Tom, I talk to about these kinds of things, the dream building, the creativity, the following of a mother's heart or a wife's heart so that we're all creating cool stuff uh, with the freedom that taking risks has provided us, us taking the risk to be free, Tom Haberstroh taking risk after risk along his life path to make sure he gets close to his dreams, as he says, fueled by his mother's love. One of the things that we could do only at ESPN at Disney was support a single charity. And what I want to do around here is support all the human stories that move you just because you know the people involved and you care about them. So Tom and Kate Fagan and our friend Boog Shambi have been deeply involved in doing some work that is personal and human to them. So in as much as you can in a short period, given all the life that your mother helped you with, Tom, just explain to the people why you care about what you care about as it regards specifically to your mom and how you lost her and what you learned about love 
and her as you grieved her death, as you saw it happen very slowly, because this is a prison of a disease. We should stop here and say she hasn't died yet. Um, oh, dear God. <laughs> you, no. might, you might have confused. That's no. a Kate's $50 fine. $50 fine. Okay, very good. How could you? Okay, let's leave that in there. That's fine. That deserves to be in there. $50. Tom, your first thing here. I thought he had lost his mom. Jesus Christ, that's terrible. $50 fine. $100. I can't, well, wait a minute. What? Paid directly to Tom Habershow and match it to another charity. I, 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 this is horrific. What just happened here publicly? I, I am sinking into it, deeply ashamed. Your first, I am giving you a fifty dollar bonus as you start. How does your one career. person do this so often? I'm confused I by it, Tom. I, <laughs> Tom, I'm, I'm grieving, deeply sorry. I'm I killed now Tom. About my I'm, mother's death. Tom, you inform me. I'm, I have a job, and you also inform me my mother just passed. Away. Tom, this I am is... deeply sorry that I killed your mother. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> How do you make this she, mistake more than once? Most people yeah, she, live an entire life without making this mistake. You've done it two dozen times. I am so sorry, Mama Haberstroh. I just spent two days with her, three days with her in Westport. I hadn't seen her in, in months. And it's all a, a farce that that didn't happen just then. Like, she's she's passed away, apparently. Mama! Um, so, yeah, so she has ALS, okay? It's a terminal disease, 100% fatal. You have every reason to believe that she might have passed away because this disease is so ruthless and it it kills people so quickly. My mother has had it for three years and it's the average life expectancy of, of ALS is three to five years. She, back in when she was diagnosed, she wanted us to start a movement to raise money and awareness for funds for research on ALS because there is no effective treatment. There is no, there is no cure. It is a death sentence. And so she said, do something. So we created the ALS pepper challenge, kind of like the ice bucket challenge. We eat a pepper and we share the video of eating that hot pepper and we share it and nominate three people, just like the ice bucket challenge. And it went viral and it was amazing. Dan, I like to, I like to rib you a little bit for this is that you did not do it. Stu Gatz did it. And you sat there silently watching Stu Gatz in pain. And I, uh, and I thought that your mom had died because I didn't do it. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I can't, I've, I've got to stop you for half a second here, Tom, because I want to get back to this, but Chris Whittingham and Mike Ryan are having a vigorous argument right now in the other room where Chris Whittingham is like, I simply can't air Dan killing Tom Haberstroh's mom. And Mike Ryan, who sprinted back in here, to not allow me to edit this. I believe his judgment is right. We're going to need to get an executive ruling from Tom Haberstrow on how he feels all of this, because I do believe the awkwardness of me killing your mother is something that should haunt me here, and we should keep in this South Beach session. This is a gold oh. standard, surefire, Suey Award winner, Tom. Yes. You're, we're keeping this in here. My yes. mom would get a kick out of this. She would we were watching the if NBA as a kid, or, she would have an all ugly team. Like my mom kept an all ugly team where she had a list of NBA players that I mean she she loves this stuff. When she found out I was I was turning down that standing offer to join you, Dan, she was very excited and supportive of that decision, right? And you killed her, but that's fine. You know what? <laughs> we're gonna let it slide. Um the ALS Pepper Challenge was amazing. We raised probably a million dollars for research. Um, and then we we found Kate Fagan and Boog Shiambi, who are like lifelong friends at this point because of what we've all been through, caring for a family member or a friend who has battled ALS. And it's 
We put this project together to get Lou Gehrig Day officially done in, in Major League Baseball. And June 2nd, we're going to have a Lou Gehrig Day in baseball, honoring him, Lou Gehrig, and uh, trying to find an uh, end to Lou Gehrig's disease. And that's really special. My mom is super excited about that. And it's been a huge passion project of mine is to try to find cure for this terminal disease that has afflicted my mother. I, she can no longer speak. She can no longer uh, eat on her own. She breathes out of a tube out of her neck. And yet she is so supportive and communicative. She types on an eye gaze technology, just following her eyes. They can sense what my mom is trying to type on a keyboard. And it's been really, really special to see that you guys have wrapped your arms around this and let us kind of uh, talk about this on air and um, giving us that microphone has been super, super powerful for us. So thank you. That was a lot worse than I thought. $2,000. Back to the podcast. Well, and I'm sorry. I'm genuinely sorry. Whittingham is still... Whitt- I, I am not someone who's comfortable with the amount of discomfort right now on Whittingham, who doesn't believe we can air any of this because it's too awkward. Dan, can no. you can you can you redo the question where you say, Tom, your mom has been suffering with ALS. Can you No, can I you, cannot. Can you take no, like, I cannot. I, it just no. makes my like Tom is a colleague. I, I know. Now. No, I feel terrible. I, I, I feel legitimately bad, but I feel like the audience right now is staying with us. And Tom is sitting here saying that his mom would, uh, his mom appreciates the high and the low of this show, that we can do the serious and the sweet, and we can do the weirdly funny, awkward as well, and that his mom appreciates that. And so Tom is arguing on behalf of leave it all in, even though I think it's epically bad, shameful, and will haunt me for the better part of my life that I've done this to Tom and his mom. It's like hugely embarrassing. Well, can, can we do this? Whatever you want to happen, can you not rescind my job offer? I mean, he's a criminal drunk, right? He's a criminal drunk that we have found out uh, is barely hanging on to the fringes of of the profession, is still apologizing here for his point five hungover. The, the point oh five, Dan. Point, it's lame, a very big yeah, difference. That is a big five difference. That's a huge, huge difference. I'm killing you too. Analytics. I'm, Hashtag I'm, analytics. Yes. <laughs> uh, Tom, it's good to have you aboard. I'm sorry for all of the awkwardness that is staying in this interview where I uh, will get fined $50 or more for my first act uh, with you boarding the Meadowlark media pirate ship is to kill your mother. I'm sorry I did that. It's okay. She enjoyed it. Uh, she loves your family. I told her the story about your parents. Um, she loves the whole thing about it. So I, uh, I'm, I'm so happy to be aboard this pirate ship and I uh, want, want to say thank you for, for thinking of me. And um, yeah, I'm going to keep blabbering on, but uh, I, I love you guys and thank you. Mike hasn't recovered though. Mike is still feeling the Tom awkwardness is being nice of all this. Because you're, <laughs> as a co-founder of Metal Art Media, he can't exactly tell you how offended he is. But holy shit, yeah, man! Right? I, That's a bad one. It's what everyone's going to remember. That's the from worst this. one you've ever done. Because usually, when you're killing people, you're doing it behind their back. I'm so sorry, Tom. I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I'll ask. I'll ask her what she thinks. I'm so sorry. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo. The tequila that invented tequila. 
Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.